Hey guys, welcome back to the Pool Cleaner Hour. It's me, your host, Tinker Buff, and for the next little bit, I'm going to be filling your ears with some ramblings about various topics and various things. So just sit back and relax in your mind's pool and cool off or heat up. It's up to you. It's your pool. I'm just here to make it comfy. A quick disclaimer, I'm not an expert. I'll probably pronounce things wrong. If you find something that piques your interest, just use me as a springboard. Let's have a nice time, guys, and possibly even scooch the envelope. Today we're going to be talking about the Great Emu War. For me, it's one of my favorite topics to go to whenever I'm out at the bar and would like to regale some friends with a fun story. It's probably something you've heard a little bit about. It gained some traction and popularity for a bit. I believe there was a game in the making and there was even a movie that was going to star Michael Caine, though it's been stuck in production hell. But I hope you guys enjoy it. Here it comes. War Journal, 1932. The Great Depression has taken its toll worldwide. Australia was no exception. Food is scarce, the weather is brutal, and the end of World War I is still fresh in our minds. We need to farm. We need crops to sustain ourselves, so we've pushed into the outback. We've received word that a horde of emu have taken over the potential farmlands. The residents requested aid, so now myself and two others are riding in the back of this truck to see this strange new enemy. The rumbling engine is familiar, but whether it reminds me of home or the front lines of the previous war, I'm not sure yet. Everything is sepia. It's been sepia-colored since 1914. I haven't seen colors in over a decade now. We went from killing men to hunting birds, said to have evolved directly from the dinosaurs. But it doesn't matter. It's all the same. War never changes. What are emus? What are emus? They're birds! Second in bird height, only to the ostrich. At around 5 feet tall and 100 pounds, this flightless bird isn't as deadly as the badass murdering loving cassowary, but it is still formidable and a reminder that birds are ancestors of dinosaurs. They stand proudly on two scale-covered legs that can propel them up to 30 miles an hour. Each leg has three powerful front-facing talons capable of eviscerating prey or disemboweling a man. Covered in a thick, almost shaggy dog-like texture of feathers, covering all but their legs and their lengthy necks, which are a beautiful royal blue, this all leads to a small head with a powerful beak. The emus make a very cool sound, almost like drum thumps coming deep in their core. Emus are nomadic by nature, but if they find a place they like, they will become territorial and take over like a gang, thus bringing the event now known as the Great Emu War. Often considered a protected class of animal, emus were mostly left alone in the Australian outback. However, when farmers were trying to raise wheat, these birds became quite an issue. They built fencing and tried all sorts of deterrence, but being notoriously ornery beasts, the emus broke through every defense and destroyed the crops. The farmers relayed their concerns to the government, which called upon a deputation of ex-soldiers from the First World War, who requested the use of machine guns to fight off the emus, figuring, why not, we'll just go in guns blazing, we'll have this wrapped up by the weekend. 
when the small band of veterans arrived and saw a flock of 50 emu just not caring about them at all, they opened fired, hoping to kill all of them. War Journal, 1932. We arrived at the farm and immediately saw the flock. The first thing I noticed was their red eyes. A striking color. One I only remember now seeing in the form of fresh blood. These creatures, the sounds they made, were like drums from the bowels of hell itself. They clawed at the ground, and their talons shimmered like bayonets, unsheathing themselves for war. I gripped my machine gun. I couldn't tell if it was nerves, or if it was my body urging me to go like a racehorse at the gate. I didn't hear the order. I just heard the gunfire of the men around me. The birds thundered their drum-like calls. I didn't understand what they were saying, but I do know a fuck you in any language, and that's definitely what this was. They scattered mindlessly. We counted ourselves a victory. Even had a few photos taken for the papers back home of the ones we did manage to kill. There was talk of a newsreel. We saved the farm. Oh, so proud of ourselves. So tell me now, if there is a god, why do we see a thousand birds returned? Like cutting off the head of a mythical hydra. Every emu we slaughtered, one hundred took its place. The humans did their best to take down these emu, but their machine guns jammed, and uh, the tactics of spraying ceaseless rounds proved to be completely useless. Uh, no matter how many bullets they poured, their guns either jammed or broke before a countable amount of birds even fell. The emus were also rumored to have these guerrilla tactics level of organization. They'd break into these small groups. They'd weave through high stalks of corn and wheat, only popping up their heads momentarily like a uh, submarine periscope. They started to note that each flock of emu even had their own leader, who would look out for them and give them plenty of heads up to run whenever they spotted people coming. There was uh, this attempt where they wanted to herd the emus into one place to create a kill box, but these birds actually either saw it ahead of time or just kind of caught on quickly what was happening, and it didn't work at all. The birds just completely ran circles around them. They were firing bullets with the guns that they had left. They weren't able to hit anything because they're too fast. And these, these three veterans, they were so crestfallen. They would have to take mental breaks and rest, as well as the fact that it is the outback of Australia, so it's crazy hot, it's dusty, it's unpleasant. So they're just having to regroup and reconfigure new plans because just shooting these birds, it's just not working out. According to Aboriginal legend, when an emu egg was hurled up to the sky, it struck this great pile of wood, which had been gathered by the cloud man, Gudenaut, which is, can't be how it's pronounced, hitting the wood with so much velocity, it actually exploded the pile into a fire, and it flooded the earth with this glowing light of dawn. The flowers lifted their sleepy heads to the sky and opened their petals so wide that the dewdrops, which night had covered them with, fell to the ground. Small birds sang excitedly on the trees, and the distant fairies who kept the snow on the mountaintops were so delighted and distracted that they allowed it to thaw and run into rivers and creeks. 
Away to the east, far over the mountains, the purple shadows of night were turning gray. The soft pink-tinted clouds floated slowly across the sky, like gigantic beautiful birds. Along the dim skyline, a path of golden fire marked the parting of the gray shadows, and down in the valley, the white mist was hiding the pale face of night. Like a sleeper, stirring softly at the warm touch of a kiss, all living things of the bush stirred at the caress of dawn. The sun rose with golden splendor in a clear blue sky, and with its coming, the first day dawned. At first the woodpile burned slowly, but the heat increased until at noonday was thoroughly ablaze. But gradually it burnt lower and lower, until at twilight only a heap of glowing embers remained. These embers slowly turned cold and pale. The purple shadows and white mists came from their hiding places, and once again the mantle of night was over the land. When Gudenat saw what a splendid thing the sun was, he was determined to give it to us forever. At night, when the fire of the sun had burnt out, he would go to work deep in the dark forest in the sky, and he would collect another pile of wood. At dawn, he would light it, and it burn until the noonday is reached. Then slowly it burns away until twilight and night falls once more. Gudenout became the eternal wood gatherer, then makes his lonely way to the forest for the wood and would light the fire once more. In aboriginal traditions, emus were regarded as creator spirits. It was believed that emus once flew across the sky before they lost their wings in this ridiculous spat with turkeys, which is kind of its own long story, and it's mostly just sad. Uh, basically, I the gist of it is the, the emu and the turkey are going at it, and this emu convinces this turkey to uh, kill all of her children because she said she's not a good enough mother to take care of all the kids that she has. And this was because the turkey convinced the emu to cut her wings. It's it's sad and depressing. Anyway, the creator spirit of the emu is still reflected when the Milky Way is visible over the Australian bushland. The constellation of the Milky Way is actually what the Aboriginal people refer to as the emu in the sky. War Journal, 1932. It's been a month now. The emus have grown to 20,000. They've formed packs, each with their own leader. I don't understand this enemy. They take bullets, but don't slow down. They have no means of retaliation, but have some power over our weapons, maybe our bullets, our leader... Major Meredith has been tirelessly strategizing, but even I see the doubt in his eyes. He reflected to us how these emu, they face us with the invulnerability of tanks. I've heard discussion of pulling us out of the war, but what would that mean? Would that mean we'd be losing to birds? I won't pretend to have the mind of a superior officer, but I suppose the numbers are there. We've been fighting for days, and the body count of the emus have been apparently less than a hundred out of thousands. We've barely even scratched them, and here we are exhausted, dehydrated, and weary of the world. So tell me, dear reader, when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, do they only destroy each other?
On the 8th day of November, only about six days into the war, 2,500 rounds of ammunition had been spent. The official account of Emu's dead was a mere 50. The number of humans dead were, I mean, well, zero. There's only three of them. By this point, the press was giving the militia some pretty negative coverage, backtracking their original victory stance, and Parliament was feeling a little silly about the whole ordeal. So they just, they ordered the withdrawal, which unfortunately is basically a sucks to suck to the farmers because the emus descended evermore onto the farm. This naturally proved to only making things considerably more embarrassing to the higher-ups, and the farmers were naturally more enraged. These birds totally flattened crops over large areas, and a field that previously would return six bags per acre was now only returning two bags. So four days after this, they sent the troops back to war. It was said by one of the officers that the only true way to kill one of these incredible birds was to sharpshoot a bullet through its head when its mouth was open, which is a near impossible shot when the bird is bobbing and weaving at about 30 miles an hour. And by this point, it was stated that the birds had actually learned of the gun's range and they knew how far they needed to go to stay out of danger, which is insane. The, the men at this point, they mounted a machine gun to the back of the trucks and sped after the birds while a gunner in the back sprayed all they could down on them. So like a true good old boys night, like, like a, a warthog in Halo, when you got your boy on the back, just guys being dudes flying after these birds. Uh, but the birds, obviously, they can go far more off-road, even without flying. They're emus. They can they can go anywhere they want. Um, so this actually proved to be an even costlier waste because now you're burning gasoline, you're you're breaking these trucks down, and you're still not killing anything. Um, <laughs> although the second attempt it was deemed uh, more successful, there was a supposed 900 birds murdered. But that was also uh, kind of a calculation they made because they were like, well, I definitely wounded those with enough bullets that it should be dead. But the cost of ammunition was insane. The three officers reported that for every singular emu that they would kill, they would have to have a minimum of 10 rounds to do it. Farmers and parliament at this point were not only just fed up with the whole thing, but they were beginning to wonder that if the tax were actually exasperating the crop losses, because the birds would scramble each time a gun went off. So these very large birds uh, would trample the crops even more than they were already eating them. The birds were simply overwhelmingly formidable and were willing to cause a lot of collateral damage in order to survive. Uh, by this point, the public found out more about the war, and the people were growing really unhappy about the killing of these birds. The emu is on the crest of Australia. It's the national bird. So imagine the shitstorm if the American military sent out a group of men to slaughter a bunch of bald eagles, and on top of that, slaughtering them with no foreseeable end or justification. Naturally, the powers that be, once more, pulled people back and said, guys, we're just going to let the birds be. This isn't the only time, though, that humans were bested by beasts. Not even the first time a military body was bested. One of the greatest generals in the world was forced into a retreat by rabbits. Around July 
1807, the legendary short king Napoleon Bonaparte was feeling adventurous. This was a few years before his defeat at Waterloo with the whole balancing cannonballs thing, but Napoleon had recently signed the treaties of Tilsit, which ended the war between the French Empire and Imperial Russia. So, to celebrate, an official rabbit hunt was organized by Napoleon's chief of staff, Alexandre Berthier. The amount of rabbits collected ranges anywhere in legend from several hundred to three thousand. The true amount was never clear, but it's always regarded in general as just an army of furballs. The rabbits were brought to the hunting ground and kept in cages until Napoleon and his party crew were ready to rest their might and slaughter these beasts. However, when Alexandra opened the cages, the rabbits didn't flee in terror. They all, at once, ran towards the most powerful man in the world with a ravenous desire for pets and snacks. Caught totally off guard, Napoleon and his boys had a good laugh, but then realized they couldn't get the rabbits to leave them alone. They tried beating them back with riding crops and whipping at them. They fired their shots, but the rabbits didn't care. General Paul Charles Francois described the scene in his memoirs. The intrepid rabbits turned the emperor's flank, attacked him frantically in the rear, refused to quit their hold, piled themselves up between his legs till they made him stagger, and forced this conqueror of conquerors, fairly exhausted, to retreat and leave them in possession of the field. The near-global conqueror Napoleon fled to his carriage in a mind-boggling panic, but even then, the rabbits refused quarter. According to historian David Chandler, with a finer understanding of Napoleonic strategy than most of his generals, the rabbit horde divided into two wings and poured around the flanks of the party and headed for the imperial coach. It's reported that some of these rabbits even jumped into the carriage after him. The onslaught did not cease until the carriage took them far enough away and the rabbits deemed the chase no longer worth it. So, like, what the hell happened here? Alexander had purchased rabbits from a farm rather than capturing wild ones. So these were actually very tame rabbits that had grown accustomed to associating people with feeding time. So when they saw Napoleon, all they saw were tasty treats, and considering they not had been fed all morning due to their purchase and waiting all day on Napoleon to get there, they were all the more eager to pounce. War Journal final entry. We're heading home. The war is over. The birds stood their ground, and without any violence of their own, they obtained victory. These proud beasts, who were here long before us, earned their land through entirely pacifist means. Were we the true enemy all along? I don't know. I thought we were fighting for crops, for farmers for our future, but maybe, maybe we were just fighting for pride. And although I feel a certain disappointment to it all, I more so feel a sense of relief. As we stand before the ghosts of a thousand slain emus, we have to ask ourselves the true meaning of honor. Before leaving the encampment, I felt myself overwhelmed with the compulsion to leave my gun in the dirt. And thus I did. What did it accomplish, after all? This instrument, this monument of man's hubris. As soon as my hands 
left their grip on the machine gun. My eyes blinked, and the colors regained their freedoms. The color in the sky returned a beautiful blue with soft white clouds. The sepia tones retreated. I can see the colors of my skin, the green of my clothes, the beautiful shades of red on the Australian outback. The ride home is quiet, except for the rumbling of our engine that brought us here. I am tired, but I am free. Hey guys, I hope you've enjoyed these first two episodes of my Pool Cleaner Hour. I have plenty more on the way. If you liked what you've heard and you want to support me, please follow me on Instagram at tinkerbuff underscore or letterboxed at tinkerbuff where I post non-stop movie reviews of all kinds. So I hope you guys have a good rest of your day and I hope to see you in the future and, and uh, all that stuff. And we have made it to exactly 21 minutes. There we go.